low energy. His quote, the number one thing he's ever seen in all of his research to build up cellular energy. Honestly, after this interview, I agree. Simple and hold on, you're gonna to get to take a test to see how healthy your mitochondria are and maybe you're in a stress mode and don't know it and could be the reason why you have low cellular energy. So take the test, it's gonna be fun. Uh, but more than that, he gives us the answer. And I think it's really cool. So you're going to see my fascination with the topic when you watch this episode. So check it out. Hey, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors, Cyto Detox. Look, podcasts cost money. There's a lot of production uh, going around this, but uh, we are grateful to have Cyto Detox as one of the sponsors. It's so easy for me to talk about the product because myself and my family use it constantly as we practice what I preach for over 15 years. I've talked about and taught doctors and the public about cellular detox. And I'll tell you, Cyto was a breakthrough. Cyto was a breakthrough for us. Um, and it's changed so many lives. So we're grateful that they sponsor Cellular Healing TV. It makes sense, doesn't it? They should. If you're listening to this podcast and want to access the amazing Cyto Detox product Dr. Pompa just mentioned, please visit detoxoffer.com. Again, that's detoxoffer.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cellular Healing TV. I'm Ashley Smith, and today we welcome best-selling author and the creator of the Energy Blueprint, as well as the new Breathing for Energy program, Ari Witten. Ari is here today to discuss general fatigue and energy enhancement through breath work. He'll go into adrenal fatigue and why you might not be able to find the answers you're looking for with all of the practitioners who are trying to help you. So let's get started and welcome Ari Witten and of course, Dr. Pompa to the show. Welcome both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Gosh, I, I said, uh, Ari, I'm excited to bring our viewers and listeners this topic because I've talked about Wim Hof breathing in the past, right? And these things, but we really never gave, here's how to do it. So on this show, we're going to give on the how to do it. And uh, our viewers are also going to be able to join your live webinar, uh, you know, that you're doing. Um, so we'll make sure we have the link for that as well so they can learn more. But, you Wonderful. know, I, I have to say, I, I just had an experience. Uh, I was just in Mexico and they had this hot, cold, hot, cold whole system with eight different stages. And um, we got to the, uh, the cold bath and they were having people go in and out for 30 seconds. And he says, no more in 30 seconds. And I said, give me five minutes. <laughs> and, and he was like, you won't make it. You know, I said, give me five minutes. And of course I did Wim Hof breathing, right? And I got my heart rate down. And after a minute, it was like, I could have went 20, I swear to you, right? And uh, yeah, so it was like, you know, but I, of course I practiced that, right? It wasn't like it was the first time I did it, but. Anyway, so they were all, how did you do that, right? I explained some of which, which uh, you explained, but, and then I just literally came off with one of my clients who I'm helping a massive, severe neurological problems. And last time I spoke to him, I said, look, you, you, can, you can control this. And I gave him some, you know, instructions on how to breathe it through, right? And what to do. And he said to me, 
and this just happened. Hey, that was a miracle what you, you showed me. And I said, what did I show you? <laughs> I swear that's what I said. <laughs> and he's like, the breathing, the Wim Hof breathing. Anyways, and, um, and again, there's many ways to do it. And you're an expert in this, not me, honestly. I just, I just realized the, some of the physical benefits. But I, I think one of the things that people are suffering from today a lot is fatigue. Fatigue and brain fog. And who would think that breathing would be one of the solutions, right? But it is. So before we're going to give all of that, I have to ask you, how did you get into this? Well, you know, I've been a health geek my whole life. This is my singular passion since I was a little kid is studying health science. And uh, when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, it was typical teenage boy stuff. I wanted biceps and abs to get girls and, you know, that sort of thing. And um, and I was, I had a, maybe a natural talent for it. You know, I was reading college level nutrition. By the way, here's the mistake that you made there. And so did I, the girls weren't interested in biceps and abs. They were interested in like funny guys and you know, the guys that had <laughs> fun. Right. And Ashley could chime into that, but yeah, we had it all backwards because we yeah. didn't know what girls really wanted. Anyways, yes, I'm sure indeed. you figured that out. <laughs> very true. <laughs> um, very, very true. So in, um, you know, that was my world, nutrition, exercise, physiology, fitness, body composition for, for many, many years. Uh, and I was a personal trainer and nutritionist. And then in my mid-20s, I got uh, mononucleosis from Epstein-Barr virus. And it hit me extremely hard. And I, I had uh, severe chronic fatigue for about a year after that. Wow. And that really rocked my world and kind of made me realize that this thing that I would always taken for granted as a fit, you know, athletic guy, uh, energy is really, really important. And when you don't have it, everything in your life kind of goes down the crapper, you know, so your, true. your, your career, your relationships, your friendships, um, your ability to pursue what you want to do in life, everything suffers. And that really had a massive impact on me and shifted my focus away from all the body composition performance stuff towards energy. What is this whole energy thing about? What regulates it? What controls it? And then as I started to dive into that, you know, I discovered first the conventional medical model, and I was really disappointed in how they dealt with my chronic fatigue. They basically had nothing to offer me, zilch. And as I explored that and the science on it, it, it became very clear that the conventional medical paradigm really doesn't have any real paradigm or, or conceptualization of fatigue and how to fix it. You know, they've got, there was a, a review from several years ago that's a set of guidelines that are supposedly evidence-based guidelines for how to treat patients with chronic fatigue. And basically they have four treatments. They've got, um, they've got a recommendation to walk for, for 30 minutes a day, they've got cognitive behavioral therapy, they've got antidepressants, and they've got stimulant pills. That's literally what- By the way, and when I was sick, I was offered all of those, right? Exercise more. Well, guess what? I went from being a cyclist doing 300 miles a week on my bike that where if I walked down the street and back, I was actually left more fatigued, especially exactly. you know, later that day and the next day. I was offered the stimulants. I was offered the psychotropic drugs, you know, and then- even just on my own research, I started going, oh, I'm adrenal fatigued. I started trying the, you know, supporting my adrenals to no avail either, right? It was, yes. You know, oftentimes and, it would leave me worse, frankly. 
And, and that's the next part of the story is, you know, coming from a strong natural health background since, since I was a kid and studying, you know, the, the natural health gurus of that, of that day, 20 plus years ago, um, I immediately gravitated towards adrenal fatigue as the answer. And, uh, and I started reading all these books and articles on adrenal fatigue. And I was a full-blown believer in that for a long time. And interestingly, it I became- It took me two years to bounce out of that, by the way, when I realized I was too far downstream for where the real problem was. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things that really, this is kind of an ironic story, but one of the things that really angered me is seeing- the conventional medical doctors brush off the whole thing of adrenal fatigue like it was nonsense. And so I kind of, you know, uh, went on this mission to prove that adrenal fatigue was real. And, you know, and I started digging into the science. And when I started digging into the literature, this is a, this is about a full year of my life. So I'll condense it down to a few sentences. But um, I started digging into the literature and I started to discover that there were studies that actually looked at the relationship of chronic fatigue or stress-related exhaustion disorder or what's called burnout syndrome or clinical burnout or chronic fatigue syndrome and adrenal function, cortisol levels and HPA axis function more broadly, that's hypothalamic, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And um, what I discovered more and more as I dug into this literature is that the literature didn't actually support that there was much of a link between chronic fatigue and adrenal function or cortisol levels or HPA axis function. There was no predictable pattern. And, and to make this a long story short, um, I looked at, I, I spent over a year of my life finding every single study that's ever been done on that topic and compiling it into a list. And I've, I have that on my website with the screenshots uh, of the results from every one of those studies that was done over 25 years by researchers all around the world. And the, the quick summary of it is there was about 59 individual studies on different kinds of fatigue syndromes in relationship to cortisol levels. And um, more than, so uh, about 15% of them reported a link uh, with slightly lower cortisol levels or morning cortisol levels compared to normal healthy people, okay? 11% of them reported the opposite finding. Yeah, of course. Meaning slightly higher morning right. cortisol levels in the people with fatigue compared to the normal healthy people without fatigue. And then the vast majority of the studies, over 65% of them, found no detectable difference whatsoever in cortisol levels between those with full-blown chronic fatigue and those who were normal healthy people without any fatigue. Yeah. No difference in cortisol whatsoever. Every two years so, to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Um, you know, that for me was, was pretty mind blowing. And that's when I went on a mission because I realized, Hey, neither of these two camps, neither conventional medicine, nor the natural health people and alternative medicine who are all adrenal fatigue proponents. None of these people have this whole energy story figured out. And that's really what I've been dedicating my life to for the last eight years is what, what is the real science of what regulates human energy levels? Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's totally makes sense. And, you know, I, I think we both landed in a lot of the same places, you know, and one area that I, I know I've heard you speak about the mitochondria, that's where we make energy. And, you know, my toxic overload had a major impact on how my mitochondria was making 
simple ATP energy. And of course, that's what I teach, my five R's of how to fix the cell to get well. All of it came out of that, right? All of it. And um, yeah, I mean, so we, we landed in the same place, but I think you bring some unique answers. Um, like I said, one of which is breathing. Obviously breathing has a major impact because uh, how we utilize oxygen at the cell, right? So let's shift the conversation as we promised to talk about that became um, a real breakthrough for you. Yeah. Well, let me talk about mitochondria for a minute and, and then we'll kind of tie it into a bigger picture conceptual framework of what regulates human energy levels. So, you know, you and I took high school and, and college biology courses. And one of the big things that, that we were taught was always that, you know, the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. The mitochondria are the energy generators. This is where ATP comes from and what power, what gives the cell its cellular energy. And that is all true. However, there's another big aspect to this story that's only been discovered in the last 10 years or so that most people still don't even know and that we were never taught in our high school and college biology courses. And that is that the mitochondria are not just mindless cellular energy generators. They are actually environmental sensors and yeah. energy regulators. Uh, and this really comes out of the work of Dr. Robert Navio, who has coined the term the cell danger response. Mm -hmm. And as, as he describes the mitochondria, they are, in his words, the central hub of the wheel of metabolism. So they're not just this, you know, just another one of the many different organelles in the cell. They are actually extremely important. They're essentially the most sensitive things in your body that are sensing and detecting whether the body is under threat, is under attack by some sort of stressor or pathogen or whatever it may be, or toxin like mercury uh, or other heavy metals or other kinds of toxins, those mitochondria are picking up those signals. And then in response to that, they are saying, hey, we're under threat. Let's shut down energy production and shift our resources towards cellular defense. And that's the big key. That's what this cellular cell danger response is all yeah. about. It's understanding that the mitochondria have two roles in the body. One is energy mode or peacetime metabolism, and the other is defense mode or wartime metabolism. And your energy, and, and this is the key point, these things are mutually exclusive. So the more you're in one, the less you're in the other. So in other words, your energy levels are essentially a reflection of the degree to which your mitochondria are being shut down yeah. by what they perceive as attacks or threats on the body. And again, those can come in the form of heavy metals, like was in, in your case, they can come in the, in the um, from volatile gases that you're breathing in. They can come from uh, lots, you know, a thousand other kinds of environmental toxins. They can come from poor diet. They can come from alcohol. They can come from sleep deprivation and circadian rhythm disruption. They can come from psychological stress. They stress come, is stress. The body doesn't yeah. know the difference, really. Right. They can come from um, malillumination, as I like to call it, which is the, the equivalent of malnutrition, but in terms of the light that the body needs to get in order to function optimally. Um, it can also come in the form of inadequate hormesis, which is something we're probably going to talk about that relates to what you were describing in your story with the cold baths and the, and the Wim Hof style breathing. Um, and it relates to breathing more broadly. And if we are breathing dysfunctionally, 
that can actually be a chronic trigger to the mitochondria that is chronically shutting them down. And this, this was actually, this is, I think, to some extent, a pretty genuine secret within the, you know, among, among people like us, among our peers, people in the health field who really don't understand how big of a deal breathing is. We all take it for granted because we all do it and we all, nobody suspects that they're doing it wrongly. But the reality is there's something insidious going on because a huge proportion of the population has actually been wired into chronically, their, their nervous system is actually regulating their breathing habits in a dysfunctional way mm. that is leading to two, two big problems. One is um, too, too sensitive of a CO2 threshold, a carbon dioxide threshold, which we can talk about what, what that means and what the consequences are. But in short, it means that it's going to wire you into breathing too much chronically, and that replicates or mimics a stress response in your body and essentially mm. causes a state of chronic sympathetic arousal and chronic stress. Um, and the other thing it does is it prevents adequate oxygen delivery to the cells. So the cells are chronically being, even though the blood is there, uh, even though the, the oxygen is there in the blood, it's not being effectively delivered to the cells and the mitochondria. So those two things basically create too much stress and anxiety and trigger the mitochondria into a chronic stress mode where they're chronically shutting down and shifting into defense mode and turning down energy production, creating fatigue. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's, it's amazing too, because when I took my big stressor away, I got energy back. I was able to sleep through a night again, my anxiety levels dropped, but I was left in this sensitive mode to like perfumes, colognes, molds. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't live like this. I literally had to turn off that stress response because my limbic system was still firing, telling we're, we're saving your life, we're saving your life. And through neuroplasty, and I had to rewire that system. But breathing, I think, is oftentimes for many people a faster way. You know, I, I studied neuroplasty to really just shut down that system. I don't know if you know, I mean, the integrative stress response is where a lot of that work actually came from, right? And it's a stress response, the body saves its life, and that gets stuck on. Um, you should look up, there's something called um, ISRIB, stands for integrative stress response inhibitor. It's a peptide, it, it's come out of Europe and right now um, has an, a, lot, a lot of promise. And what, what it does is how it regulates protein synthesis and turns off the stress response at the level of the mitochondria. Anyway, oh, wow. really, it, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. I, you, you look it up, um, but it's, uh, we're doing some you know, research about it right now, myself and my, my doctor group. But uh, it plays into this, this whole topic of how the stress response gets uh, basically left on. And the body mm -hmm. thinks it's doing you a service, but meanwhile, um, it's not. All right, well, let, let's talk about this because I think, I think it's already a great subject. We're talking about breathing for a different reason, right? We're talking about breathing as far as fixing this stress response um, and your body being stuck there. Where do we start? Let's start with a practical test. So I just said that a majority of people have dysfunctional breathing patterns that have become wired in automatically, non-consciously that are being right. regulated by their brain and their nervous system, their autonomic nervous system in a dysfunctional way. 
and so most likely they got that way with some stress, some stress. Yeah, the, a combination of two things really. Um, one is chronic stress itself, chronic stress of various kinds. So just imagine um, when, when might you see someone breathing like this? If their acute situation happened. Yeah, some kind of acute stressor, right? Like even exercise would do it. Not, not even necessarily a bad context, but the body's under stress. And exercise is an acute stress. Right. And if even psychological stress will speed up the heart rate and the breathing rate. So if someone has chronically too much stress on their body, they're getting this chronic sympathetic activation that has physiological effects. It's not all just in the mind. Right. It's interacting with the autonomic nervous system, speeding up the heart rate a little bit chronically and speeding up the breathing rate chronically. And if you do that chronically, you know, for weeks and months and months, you have too much chronic stress and you don't have adequate periods where you're also training in the relaxation and training your nervous system how to calm down, then it becomes dysregulated and it starts to regulate um, the, the new breathing rate and breathing volume at a faster pace that is more aligned with a chronic stress state. And that creates somewhat of a vicious cycle because this feedback goes in both directions. You have the psychological stress, it speeds up the breathing rate, but also if your breathing rate is chronically too fast, it creates psychological stress and stress right. in the nervous system, sympathetic arousal. So these things become a vicious cycle and that's how they get wired in. One other factor that, that interplays with that little bit more layer of complexity here is um, lack of fitness and la lack of hormetic stress also tends to cause a dysregulation of the, the breathing set points and the CO2, the carbon dioxide threshold that actually regulates that breathing rate. But basically the, the short of it is people are getting wired into a too fast and too high a volume of breathing chronically. And that is mimicking a stress state and it is perpetuating a chronic sympathetic, chronic stress state in their body. So here's, here's a little minute long test that we can do together to see this for yourself. And it's called the BOLT score, the BOLT test, body oxygen level test uh, developed by Patrick McCown, who is the world renowned breathing expert that I've partnered with to create my new program, Breathing for Energy. And the test is very, very simple. We're gonna do it together. So a couple little specifics I need to, to tell you about before we jump into it so that you do this correctly. Um, and I'm speaking to everybody listening here. So one is we're, we're essentially gonna do a type of breath hold test, but this is not a type of breath hold test where you are going to do your maximal breath hold time. Okay, so here's what we don't wanna do in this test. We don't wanna go <sighs> and take in the deepest breath that we possibly can and then hold, you know, and, and, and hold as long as we possibly can till we can't hold, you know, a second longer and then we're gasping for air. Okay, that's not what this test is. What this test is, is normal breathing, not big inhales, just normal, your normal pattern of breathing. You're gonna take a few breaths like that, okay? S small breathing, normal breathing, in and out through the nose, okay? And then you're, you're not going to take any special big inhale beforehand, just normal inhale. And then you're going to take a normal exhale. Don't blow out all your air, just a normal exhale right after the exhale. And, and don't do this yet. I'll 
I'm just trying to guide you through it. But right after the exhale, you're going to pinch your nose, close your mouth, hold your breath. Okay. And then we're going to hold until your first urge to breathe. It might be, you know, just a feeling of discomfort and a feeling of like, I need to release my nose, or it could be the diaphragm contracting or the breathing muscles kind of starting to, to involuntarily contract. Um, but some discomfort, some significant urge to breathe, and then you're going to release it. Okay. So again, it's going to look like this and then I'll count the seconds for us. It's going to be normal inhale, normal exhale. And then after the exhale here, pitch the nose, hold, and then I'll count the seconds. Okay. So take a couple normal breaths in and out. Okay, one more inhale and then exhale and pinch your nose and hold. Okay, go for it. Okay, so keep holding. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40. Okay. Now, the sorry I put you on the spot there, Dr. Pampa. <laughs> hey, I, I felt the first urge about. 15 seconds where I just kind of felt something, right? And yeah. then 20 seconds, it was like, okay. And then 25 seconds, I felt like I had to breathe. Right. So um, interestingly, even a lot of athletes will only get about 25, 30 seconds. Okay. Um, but the, the, the bottom line of this is that ideally people should be near 40 seconds or above. Wow. Okay, and, and, and that's, that's really what's considered optimal and anything below 20 seconds is considered a sign of dysfunctional breathing. Wow. Okay. It's considered a sign. What you, what you're really measuring here is actually your CO2 threshold. That's hmm. how the brain regulates the urge to breathe is not necessarily the drop of oxygen or lack of oxygen. It's actually primarily the increased levels of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And if you have been wired into a, a, a hypersensitivity to carbon dioxide, that again, speeds up the breathing rate, but it also creates this chronic stress and it makes you very susceptible to anxiety. So one, one interesting thing that very few people are aware of, even you know, doctors and, and health professionals, is the role of CO2 in autonomic nervous system arousal. One interesting uh, line of research that I wasn't aware of until just a few years ago is if you take people and you have them breathe in a solution of, uh, of carbon dioxide, you know, a 5% or 7% solution of carbon dioxide, you rapidly create a massive anxiety response. Okay. And it's not because there's a deficit of oxygen. It's not because they're suffocating, but they feel like they're suffocating hmm. and they will have a, a huge anxiety, a rush of anxiety and, and a panic attack in some cases just from a few seconds of breathing in higher levels of carbon dioxide. I, I wonder how much like these mask mandates right now, because there's so much more depression, there's so much more anxiety, there's so much more, and everyone's just blaming, you know, what's going on, but it could be 
the fact that we know you can measure it. If you yes. put a simple mask on your face, you increase CO2 pretty dramatically. Yes, I agree with you 100%, though I'm hesitant to go there because of how uh, politically you know, charged the whole situation is and, and how heavily the science has been politicized. But the short answer is yes, absolutely. It's extremely likely that masks contribute to higher levels of anxiety. And it's something I'm particularly passionate about as far as kids. Um, I think it's something that we need, all need to be aware of as kids. Yeah. as far as our kids. And I will also mention, not a lot of people know this, but one of the big risk factors for severe COVID is actually anxiety disorders. So um, we need to, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of feel very, uh, what's the right word? They feel very passionate about promoting fear as if they're, they're you know, and, and promoting precaution, you know, like they're, they're trying to be a good citizen but we also need to be cautious that of the fact that too much fear and too much anxiety around the situation can actually create uh, and can increase the propensity for severe COVID. So it's a tricky balance, you know, how yeah, do you educate is. people so they take right. adequate caution, but how do you not create so much fear and hysteria that you're actually damaging people? Um, so that CO2 threshold is extremely important and if your brain is highly sensitive to CO2, that creates a chronic state of high levels of sympathetic arousal, creates a chronic straight state of tension and anxiety. And, uh, and it also changes your breathing rate and wires in a state of over-breathing or hyperventilation as your normal baseline breathing habits. So because Basically, the way that works is because your brain is constantly sensing that CO2 levels are too high, it's constantly trying to get rid of excess CO2 to calm the nervous system down. And that's really the state of dysfunction is the body's chronically um, overbreathing in order to try to get rid of that CO2 to calm down, but it's also simultaneously perpetuating the sympathetic uh, arousal and the stress state by overbreathing, right? So there's a vicious cycle going on there that has to be unlearned and you yeah. have to reset the CO2 tolerance of your brain and regulate your breathing in a different way. Now, here's a huge myth that has been promoted um, over the years in yoga circles, meditation circles, health circles, breathing program circles. And this was something that I feel very passionate about because it was something that really damaged me personally and actually caused years of anxiety for me. And this is the idea that optimal breathing is deep breathing. Optimal breathing is, you know, big, deep inhales through the belly and full expansion on each breath. You know, I, I learned that that was how we're supposed to breathe optimally. And so I spent years const constantly trying to entrain that as my baseline breathing pattern, thinking that that, you know, I was moving towards optimal, but, you know, going back to what I said before, when is it that we breathe like this? <gasps> stress. It's under stress. And when we're doing physical exercise, so actually deep breathing is stress breathing. Now, it's a, there's a nuance to it, which is that taking a few deep breaths and exhaling can, can be calming. But if you think that that is your, your supposed to be your baseline pattern, that's actually dysfunctional. You're perpetuating stress in your body. And I caused myself an enormous amount of anxiety by trying to wire that in for so long. 
Um, to contrast this, if you have ever, if you, if you have kids, you know, I have a two-year-old, I, I have a five-year-old and I have a two-year-old daughter. And uh, so I'm kind of still in the baby stage sort of. And if you ever watch a baby sleep or a toddler sleep, you know, when they're asleep, if you watch their breathing pattern, do they breathe like this? <gasps> or do they breathe so softly and so subtly that you can barely even detect that they're breathing? And sometimes you have to watch them for 30 seconds to even see some movement in the belly and the chest to even detect if they're breathing or not. And it's obviously the latter. And this is, this is one of the big misconceptions. Deep breathing is not optimal breathing. Optimal breathing is light and slow breathing, okay? So uh, the, the, uh, there's a famous quote from Lao Tzu where he said, the perfect human breathes like they're not even breathing at all. And there's another famous quote from uh, a Qigong master who said, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, hold on one second. Uh, well, I can't find it, but he said something to the effect of the, the first level of breathing is breathing so that um, you can't see or hear yourself breathing, or sorry, you can't, somebody else can't see or hear you breathing. The second level of breathing is that you can't see or, or hear yourself breathing. And the third level of breathing is that you can't even feel yourself breathing. It's so light and so gentle that it's, it's almost like it's just happening so slowly and gently, right? And if you, if you contrast, let's say, um, just to maybe ingrain this further, let's say a young, healthy, fit person versus a, um, an 85-year-old person with heart failure, okay? And they are, imagine them both walking next to each other and you know, they're doing the same exact physical activity how are those two people going to be breathing? The, the person, the 85-year-old is going to be breathing like this, right? Fast, heavy breathing, big volume of air going in and out very, very fast. The person next to them, the young, fit, healthy person, probably can't even see their breathing or hear it, right? It's, it's non-detectable. That is what's optimal breathing. And uh, there's a huge misconception out there that deep breathing is optimal breathing. So um, that's, that's extremely important to understand. Awesome. All right. So <clears throat> people are out there done the test. Now they're going, okay, I had 15 seconds, right? Uh, you know, how do I fix it? Well, what do I yes. do? Tell us. Yes. So one of the big keys is air hunger exercises. Okay. So we actually have to train the brain to get used to higher levels of CO2. And one of the most important, and, and so that the brain can start regulating light and slow breathing instead of the fast over breathing, okay? So the way we do that is, what I'd like everybody to do is just take two fingers, put it right beneath your nose, don't plug the nostrils, okay? Just a little space right beneath your nostrils and just breathe normally in and out through the nose and try to feel the air moving in and out through the nose, try to feel it on your fingers, okay? And just take a few breaths, allow your, allow your breathing to be normal, let it settle in. And now what I want you to do is 
just try to take half as much air in and push half as much air out on each breath for the next five or 10 breaths, okay? So try to make it so that you can't, and try to do it so slowly so that you can't even feel the air moving in and out over your fingers, okay? Maybe five more breaths like that. And you might start to feel a little bit of air hunger, a little bit of discomfort and a desire to breathe. Okay, and if it gets too strong, then you can release it. So that practice, which you can do for a period of three, you can start with just one minute at a time, and then you build it to two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. Doing that practice starts to entrain a new automatic breathing pattern that is light and slow. The, the rate of breathing and the volume of breathing are both reduced massively and CO2 levels go up and the brain has periods of time where it's being exposed to those higher levels of CO2. So then it starts to reset that set point, reset that tolerance to CO2 and starts to regulate. Once you have a higher tolerance to CO2, that means your brain is, is not constantly trying to, it's not constantly perceiving there's too much CO2 and trying to blow off the excess. So that allows you to entrain a new breathing pattern. And there's another really critical benefit to this. CO2 is often thought of by most people as a, uh, just a waste gas. You know, I remember learning in physiology courses, which I took many of, that you, know, you, you kind of think of, oh, we breathe in oxygen, oxygen's good, and then CO2 is produced. It's just this waste gas that we gotta get rid of. But actually, um, we don't get rid of all the CO2 that is being produced with each breath. We are retaining a lot of it. And that's not a mistake. We're actually designed to retain it and have a certain level of CO2 in our body because yeah. it's not just a waste gas. It actually serves a really critical role in our body. And this has something to do, this has to do with something called the, the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R. And what this is, is the, let me, let me first explain one piece of this, which is oxygen comes into your system, it comes into your lungs, and then it goes from your lungs into the, the capillaries, into the blood vessels, where it bonds with uh, the red blood cells, a specific molecule in the red blood cells called hemoglobin. So it chemically bonds with them. And then what happens, how does that oxygen that's floating around on red blood cells in your bloodstream attached to hemoglobin, how does it know when to get released so that it actually goes into your cells, goes into your muscle cells, your organ cells, your brain, your heart, your liver, and so on. How does it know when to disconnect from the hemoglobin? The answer is actually carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide creates a certain, it changes the pH of that environment. And that causes the, the chemical bond between hemoglobin and oxygen to dissociate. And that's what allows the oxygen to go from the red blood cell into the cell, into the mitochondria. So the ability to deliver oxygen to your cells depends on having adequate levels of carbon dioxide in your body. Well, what happens if you're in a chronic hypersensitivity to carbon dioxide where you have low levels of it because your brain's constantly thinking we have an excess and is trying to blow it off. Right. That means you have chronically low levels of carbon dioxide, which is 
decreasing oxygen. the ability of that oxygen to actually get dropped off in your cells. And that's the big Makes key. Sense. So the ability to bring that oxygen and hyperoxygenate your cells and allow those mitochondria to produce energy depends upon having higher levels of carbon dioxide. And that depends upon breathing in the right way and resetting that CO2 threshold in the brain. How, how often do you do this a day? Okay, so there's, there's, two, there's two layers to this process of resetting CO2 threshold. The first layer is what I just showed you. So if someone has a low Volt score, let's say beneath, below 20, that's an indication of their automatic breathing habits are dysfunctional, they're over-breathing as a result of hypersensitivity to CO2. So there's, for people in that state, they would wanna focus on doing practices like that. And there's a few different variations of those kinds of air hunger practices. Um, but you do those kind of practices, you entrain in light and slow breathing as your new baseline habit. That's step one, okay, for people with low Volt score. If you have an adequate Volt score like you had, or above, anything above at least 25, but hopefully closer to 40, what you, what you work on more at that point is less those fundamental practices that are trying to retrain the autonomic nervous system's baseline, you know, non-conscious automatic breathing habits. And you actually start to do much more aggressive uh, practices to really build massive amounts of air hunger and, um, and, and, build, and really reset that CO2 threshold in the brain. And that revolves around intermittent hypoxic training or breath holding practices. So, and this, this relates to something called hormesis, which is how transient metabolic stress, basically uh, that, that, that stress creates a stimulus on the body to adapt to it. And in the process, the stressor creates adaptations that ultimately confer health benefits that make the whole body, make the cells more resilient and resistant to a broad range of other stressors. And one of the absolute most powerful uh, practices for people dealing with chronic fatigue and the single fastest way that I've found to rapidly increase energy levels is actually intermittent hypoxic training and taking your ability to hold your breath on a full exhale, on a full exhale, exhale with no yeah. air in the lungs um, from 10 to 15 seconds, which is you know what most people with chronic fatigue will have all the way up to two and three minutes and beyond. Wow. And if, if you do that, you will see massive improvements in your energy levels within just a few weeks, because that is really how you reset that CO2 threshold in the wow. brain. And you can very, do that several times a day, once a day, whatever, right? I mean, one, once a day is a good metric. And I will also say that, you know, just to rehash this, the reason that there's these two steps that I don't necessarily recommend doing this for people with Volt scores is it's too much. For people with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, like you, you mentioned how, you know, just going for a walk around the block yeah. when you had chronic fatigue right. would, would actually make you worse. Yep. And that's, that's the challenge here is hormetic stress yeah. um, can actually make you worse if you are in a, a, in a very, very poor state of health. Well, yeah, no, I, teach, I teach on hormesis, right? Because hormesis applies to everything. And the easiest thing that I found for people to understand it is exercise. If you sit on the couch and do nothing, Okay, you're, you're failing on the premise of hormesis. You're not getting a good stress that makes you stronger, better, feel better, right? 
But if someone that hasn't worked out in months, maybe years, does the workout I do, they're going to suffer from a violation of the premise as well. On the other side, they're going to overtrain and have massive negative benefits, right? The hormetic yep. zone is the key, which means though, as you do this breathing thing, just like exercise, you're going to have to take your stress up a little bit to get the benefit, right? That's In other right. words, you need the stress, you have to increase the stress, you have to increase the stress and you keep benefiting at a higher hormetic curve. So yep. if you don't stress enough, you're not going to benefit. If you stress too much, you're going to over uh, tax and not, not adapt to the stress that becomes negative. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that Goldilocks zone of what is the appropriate dose of stress differs depending on the individual and even within the individual exactly. differs over time because you should be chronically trying to progress and do something a bit more. That's why I, I like this. Adapt. So if you're under 20, to your point, you start here, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because that's, that's going to be key. Because yep. if you start too much, you're going to bulk, as we say. <laughs> so. yep. Yeah. And if you try to rush into holding your breath for two minutes, you can pass out. And by yeah. the way, just a quick uh, other warning. You should not do these practices underwater in a pool. You should, they should always be done on land. <laughs> yeah. uh, because okay. if you pass out on land, no big deal. You're going to wake up in a few minutes. If you pass out underwater, you're dead. So um, Good you know, just, just be aware of that. And um, if you... These, these practices, though, these intermittent hypoxic training practices uh, are really profound. And I want to take a second to tie this back into what we we're talking about at the beginning with, uh, with mitochondria. One of the other, so let me tie in this, the mitochondria with hormesis. Um, one of the big keys to understand about that cell danger response, this role of the mitochondria in regulating energy and deciding, should we either produce energy or are we under attack and should we shift into defense mode and shut down energy production? That depends on the state of your mitochondria. So are you in a state where your body is filled, your cells are filled with big, strong, healthy mitochondria and lots of them, or have those mitochondria atrophied and become damaged and dysfunctional? And have you literally lost a whole bunch of your mitochondria um, over, over the years. Which, which happens in a lot of very sick and challenged people. It happens to most people. So uh, actually there's research looking at mitochondrial capacity with aging, showing that mitochondrial capacity is cut in half between the ages of 40 to 70. And there's likely a similar cutting in half of mitochondrial capacity between the ages of 20 to 40. Now, so in other words, between wow. the ages of 20 to 70, most people lose 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. Now, what's really interesting about this is there was one study where they took a bunch of 70-year-olds who were lifelong exercisers, and they measured their mitochondrial capacity. And what they found is that uh, the 70-year-olds did not have half the mitochondrial capacity as the 40 year olds, they had the same mitochondrial capacity. And the reason why, and this is an important thing to understand because it means that the loss of mitochondrial capacity, the, literally the atrophy and dying off of your mitochondria is not just a natural process of aging. It is from lack of hormesis in your life. So just if you've ever broken a bone and you had a cast on, 
and you got that cast off six weeks or eight weeks later and you looked at your arm or your leg and you compared it to the other one, you noticed that the, all the muscles were probably half the size. I mean, massive reduction of the muscles that are there within just a few weeks. So imagine what happens with years or decades of disuse. That same exact process is happening internally at the level of the mitochondria. It's use it or lose it. If you don't stimulate and challenge them, they, they atrophy and, and die away because the body doesn't invest lots of energy and resources into maintaining something if it's not needed. So that process of the loss of mitochondria actually decreases what I call your resilience threshold which is how easily your mitochondria are overwhelmed by stress, various, whatever kinds of stress from psychological stress to toxins and how easy they are to overwhelm and switch energy mode off and switch defense mode on. So the point at which they start to shut down energy production and shift into defense mode, the resilience threshold depends upon the health of your mitochondria and if they're big and strong and you've got lots of them, or if they're weak and dysfunctional and atrophied and you've lost a whole bunch of them from lack of hormesis. So the hormesis aspect and intermittent hypoxic training, breath hold practices are a powerful type of hormesis. This creates the stimulus to build mitochondria and, and for mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of new, new mitochondria from scratch, the building of new ones um, to essentially reverse that loss of mitochondrial capacity that is normally seen when, in most people with aging. Yeah. So, and each type of hormesis does this in its own unique way. So exercise and different types of exercise have unique hormetic benefits yeah. and breath holding practices also have unique benefits and specific adaptations that they stimulate in the body. Um, beyond just resetting the CO2 threshold, they are actually building lung capacity. They're building the heart's capacity to pump blood they're retraining the nervous system. They're building mitochondria in your cells, in your lungs, in your heart, in your brain. There's a powerful response to dipping oxygen levels and increasing CO2. And basically the mitochondria sense that the, the low oxygen state, the temporary low oxygen state and the high levels of CO2, and they go, oh my gosh, we got to adapt to be more efficient at extracting and utilizing oxygen to produce energy. So they make those adaptations grow bigger and stronger in very specific ways that allows you to hyper oxygenate your cells and produce energy much more efficiently. The, the whole premise of hormesis, adding a stress and allowing the body to adapt. You know, I always say like, you know, fasting doesn't heal. Fasting is a stress that causes the body to heal, right? Mm -hmm. But not everyone can fast the same because uh, a five-day water fast could be far too much stress for the sick person, right? Whereas the next guy, it's like, oh my God, I got all these benefits, right? So mm -hmm. it wasn't that the fast failed you. It's where were you in the ability to adapt to that specific hormetic stress, right? And that's what we're saying here is you need the stress. How much is gonna be different for all of us? Vary the stress, whether it be exercise, the intermittent hypoxia, breathing, to, you know, all of it. We need all of it, but start where you are, right? And, and I would argue though, okay, so the question, if I was the viewer, I might say, well, how do I know? Well, how do, you, how, how do you adapt? For example, if you went and did all this exercise and you're wiped out the next day, don't sleep well, you, you did too much, right? Mm -hmm. If you feel better, 
you probably got it right somewhere, right? But be cautious, the stress that works now will be different than the stress that works later because it doesn't become stressful anymore. I hope yeah. people understand that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, as your as your capacity improves, then you need to up your game with what you're doing. Uh, you know, it's, this has been a, 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 an amazing interview because I mean, I teach these principles, right? How to utilize stress to get the body to actually heal, right? And you need stress to heal because today all we think is stress bad. No, stress good. We have to have stress, right? I even teach it from a diet principle. I teach diet mm -hmm. variation and why yeah. we have to switch our diet to actually get this hormetic you know, peak to happen. And when, every time we switch our diet, we create a stress on our microbiome and then that creates diversity and that creates, it, it applies to everything, this whole principle. Right. And yeah. you're the first person that have applied it to breathing, even though I knew it applied to breathing, but you gave us, I think, a perfect test to do and a perfect instruction on how to do it, so. Awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hormesis is my favorite topic. I can talk too. to you for hours about it. I love geeking Me out too. with other people who are. Yeah, who are exactly. Into it. You know, it's yeah. funny. I, and I, I do a whole class on why uh, feast, famine, cycling is something mm -hmm. that I teach and diet, ch diet change, something we don't do today. The mm -hmm. reason we don't is because we don't have to. We're yeah. able to stay on the same eight foods for the first time in the history of man, but it's devastating. And yeah. everyone's trying to create diversity by taking bacteria you create diversity by hormesis. Simple yep. as that. Feast, with you, famine, diet, change, exercise, all of it. We stress yep. the, the microbiome. That's it. Yep. I'm with you 100%, my friend. Yeah. God, I, I love the topic of hormesis. And it's so funny. I, it's been a hormesis day. I, I just, uh, I'm, doing a, um, I'm doing a lecture at the, uh, the Bulletproof Conference, and I'm doing one for another group. And I basically, they're interviewing about hormesis, right? And, and uh, anyways, he was fascinated on the topic because he was like, it applies to our, why our device works. I'm like, that's what I told you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, your device doesn't heal anything, man. I have news for you. It just applies a stress and yeah. you can change the stress and gets the body to, to basically do what it does, right? Yeah, so 100%, awesome. you, you know, I, I, um, I started talking about hormesis about 10 years ago. And uh, at that time, I remember having conversations with a lot of our mutual friends and peers. And I'd be like, you know, do you, I, I would just start throwing out hormesis. And almost everybody without exception would say, what's hormesis? Yeah. And I was shocked because I, I mean, I'd read hundreds of studies on it. I was already convinced that this is one of the absolute most important factors in disease prevention and longevity and certainly Definitely. energy. Um, because of the obvious connection to mitochondria and almost nobody had ever heard of it. And now just in the last, you know, I'd say a couple of years, more and more people are aware of the term and aware of what, what it is and, and the meaning of it. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to be, yeah, I yeah. think along with you, kind of one of the, the first yeah. people talking about it. Well, you know, it's amazing too. And I've had this conversation with a lot of people in our space too. And it surprises me how many people really don't understand it. But yet they understand some of the things that are hot right now in our topic, hot, cold, right? Yeah. So I, I know that, you know, everyone wants to do the same thing as the other person. But I said, you know, <clears throat> cold baths can be just as destructive as they can be healing, you yeah. know, because if you go over that hormetic adaptation, right, that hormetic zone, you actually create a damn hard stress that can yeah. make you far worse, not better. 
But yep, it yep. also is why cold works. The body thinks it's going to die. It upregulates norepinephrine, growth hormone, does all these amazing things, and you adapt and you downregulate inflammation and you feel it and you feel better if you don't cross over the line. So everyone yep. goes in at the same times, everyone does the same things. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a little different for all of you, right? And you have yeah. to change the stress too. Yeah. So. And one of the other interesting layers there is uh, there's actually research looking at personality types in people with chronic fatigue or chronic fatigue syndrome, showing that a huge proportion of them are you know, sort of classic type A overachievers, perfectionists, or what they call self-critical perfectionists. And um, these are people who are just kind of go, 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 you know, I got to work hard. I got to be the best. I, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And the, the reason there's a connection there is precisely that is precisely their tendency to yeah. overdo it, to overdo the, the stress and the work side of things and have inadequate recovery and not have a good under intuitive understanding of their body's Goldilocks zone of what is the appropriate dose of stress and what is the appropriate dose of recovery needed after that stress? There was someone in our space um, who I loved this person, uh, um, thought the world of this person as well. However, uh, this person ended up with cancer, uh, doing everything right. And I put quotes around that. But this person did uh, cold therapy, um, I believe, to a, a violated the hormetic principle uh, to a point of and was a type A person, right? And I believe the cold uh, things that they did every morning, every morning, every morning, um, they weren't adapting and it became a problem for the person as a lesson you know, to people in our space, right? It's like, we need hormesis to heal, to mm -hmm. optimize hormones, to feel better, to downregulate inf inflammation. So either you don't have enough stress and you need more, or you could have too much and you need less. That hormetic zone is the magic and it doesn't surprise me. It's the answer to breathing, you know, honestly. And, and by the way, I would argue some of what you just taught here today is another reason why meditation actually works. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole other topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Let's talk. Let's put the link on because I, you're a, a wealth of knowledge. Um, I, I loved everything we talked about. So uh, tell us just a little bit about um, the, uh, the webinar that you're doing. So the, on, uh, on Wednesday, September 15th, uh, we are going, I'm going to be doing a live virtual event or a webinar, um, basically covering a lot of the science on this. I'm going to be showing a lot of research. I'm going to be giving practical tools, uh, and we're going to talk in depth about all of this stuff. And you're going to come away armed knowing how to rewire your autonomic nervous system, how to rewire your breathing habits. I'm going to teach you a powerful tool that is the single fastest way to reduce stress and reduce anxiety ever discovered. It reduces anxiety massively within seconds, just by learning how to breathe the right way. And we're going to learn techniques for uh, how to increase your energy levels. So that is all I'm going to give a ton of value. And um, I'm going to let you know also that I'm launching the Breathing for Energy program, which is the full-blown program. Uh, again, I've partnered with a world-renowned breathing expert, Patrick McCallan, who has developed specific tracks for people. You know, one is tailored for people with severe chronic fatigue or chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, one is for people with sleep issues or obstructive sleep apnea. 
One is for people with chronic anxiety and stress. One is for mental and physical performance. And then I've also partnered with a buddy of mine who's produced six levels of progressive practices of intermittent hypoxic training. They're guided visual practices. They're really fun. They've got music and visuals embedded into them. And they take you from you know, level one, which is 10, 15 second breath holds all the way up to three minutes and beyond, you know, Navy SEAL elite level uh, practices. And, um, and it is epic. They're fun daily practices. And I, I highly, highly recommend it. They can profoundly change your physiology. Um, again, I think this is the single fastest way of any tool I've ever discovered in over 25 years of studying health science, the single fastest way I've found to increase energy levels and reduce anxiety is this system of breathwork training. That's awesome, man. And that's, uh, we'll grab the link right there. We'll put it up and uh, you can get ready for Wednesday. Um, I'm going to be there. Awesome. Yeah, and if, if, if you're watching this after Wednesday, there'll be a replay. So you can Great. just go to the registration yeah. page and then you'll be put in an email sequence where you'll get access to the replay. Perfect. Ari, thank you so much. Great, great information. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Dan. You got it. I want to give thanks to one of our sponsors, Cyto Defend. Look, at a time like this, I think that our immune system and keeping our immune system up right now is more important than ever. I can also tell you that I pay attention to the things that keep my immune system on par and healthy. So, so glad that Cyto Defend is one of our sponsors here on Cell TV. And it's a product that I use, my family uses, and hopefully you'll check it out. And by the way, you can check it out with the link right here below. If you wanna try a free bottle, you can actually get a free bottle, just pay the shipping. And I think you'll reorder after that, but check it out. If you're listening to this podcast and want to access the amazing CytoDefend product Dr. Pompa just mentioned, please visit freeimmunity.com. Again, that's freeimmunity.com. Well, that's it for this week. The materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you would like to purchase some of the supplements mentioned on this show, please visit the site as seen on chtv.com and use the code chtv15 for 15% off. Again, that's as seen on chtv.com. Use the code chtv15 for 15% off. And as always, thanks for listening.